0: to hear her story today in this very unique kind of setting. Um, She has a great combination of strategic skills and people skills, and that led her to becoming a senior partner at Accenture. And after 20 years there, um, Joan finished a couple of tiny little assignments fixing Wells Fargo and Bank of America. Uh, She took an even bigger challenge, which is teaching middle, middle school girls. She returned to Agnes Scott, she got a degree in teaching, and she went to work at the Atlanta Girls' School. And she was the founding faculty member of the Sarah Blakely Entrepreneur Academy. And during a pivotal transition time there at the Girls' School, Joan was asked to become the interim director. And she was great at that, and when she finished that, which was just recently, when they found a new director, she applied and was accepted as a distinguished career fellow at Stanford. So she will begin her extraordinary journey in Palo Alto on January 1st, and we will miss her. Oh yeah, can I mention that she and her family wrote a book and started a movement called The Power of Half, and oh yeah, those two pretty extraordinary kids that she raised, Hannah and Joe. So there's so much more, but I'm gonna let Joan tell the stories please give her a big First Presbyterian welcome to the never really very normal, John King
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> you. Well, thank you, Sal. Uh, thank you, Tony, and all of First Presbyterian Church. It's my honor to be here today. Um, in, in preparing my remarks um, for today, I was compelled To reflect on all this normalcy uh, that Sal mentioned, and two careers and more. And doing that reflection did help me uh, see how all of my work has been informed by faith. And that itself was a gift. So thank you. And tis the season. Tis the season of giving. And uh, so that's very appropriate. Even those of us who like to peek under the tree and think we hear reindeer on the, the roof know that it is more blessed to give than to receive and that God loves a cheerful giver. Now, um, I know that giving is great, but my remarks are about receiving. I love receiving, (laughs) Kevin. I love receiving. (laughs) I hope that God loves a cheerful receiver because that's what I really, really am. In my professional life, three gifts I have very cheerfully received could be characterized using those good Iowa farming analogies as irrigation, evaporation, and moving closer to the source. But before all that, one of the first gifts, the first in fact, that I received was the gift of a caring family, one that was grounded in faith. Actually it was much more than grounded, it was kind of a muddy, messy kind of thing. You know, my parents, as you mentioned, were solid Iowa, salt of the earth kind of Methodist types and they um, taught Sunday school and served communion, raised three children in the church, the whole, the whole nine yards. Um, despite their best efforts, my parents got a little bit more than traditional Christian values out of their three offspring. My older brother was recruited to play basketball Uh, in college in Utah and when he got there got a knock on his door and the Mormons wearing their dark suits and their name tags also came to recruit him and um, he is now a seriously practicing Mormon. He's just a wee bit older than I am and he has 13 grandchildren and he has been a bishop in the church. My younger brother by contrast came out as a gay man at age 20 which is not really a thing in the Mormon Church, excuse me, in the Methodist Church, which, uh, or Mormon actually, um, the Methodist Church does not ordain practicing homosexuals or uh, marry same-sex couples. So I have remained really pretty steady, especially by comparison, yet I did marry my college sweetheart who is a Jew from Brooklyn. So I'm the perfect person to be addressing you today about faith. Uh, I suspect my parents are a little bit baffled about how all this happened. So the gift of irrigation began to flow right after my graduation from Northwestern. I began a 20-year career at what was first Arthur Anderson and then became Accenture. From my very first day on the job, the firm invested in me. In my first four years I toggled between professional development opportunities at St. Charles, Illinois, and putting those skills into practice on meaningful client works. It was a really intentional, purposeful development plan. This model of drip irrigation enabled my progression from lowly programmer on a state tax system in the state of Washington, to application designer for the Board of Elections in New York City, to the testing manager of a hugely complex mound of spaghetti at Freddie Mac. Later, I became quite skilled at facilitating difficult decisions with substantial trade-offs. The method paid off. In 1993, I was elected partner, just after returning from maternity leave. Did you hear that? Just after returning from maternity leave. It's fabulous. In that year, there were 854 partners globally in Anderson's consulting organization. 854. Fewer than 5% of them were women, which made for very short lines at the global partners meetings at the bathroom. (laughs) More daunting for me, however, was that exactly 13, 13 of the 854 partners scattered all over the globe were mothers. I had a daughter and an equity stake in the firm, but I had few peers or role models. They had evaporated. I still have I still have a folder of official memos that announce the resignations one by one by one of the women that I believed would be my business partners. Many of these women were superstars of client service, but they were gone. Their loss in its own way was also a gift. For one thing, the evaporation of all that talent that I witnessed inspired me to devote the next 22 years to encouraging and enable talent to grow rather than to escape. In addition, the absence of any role models was actually a gift to our marriage. Kevin and I got to work figuring things out our way. We had to look at all the tasks that were needed to run our new household with this baby girl. Not just the, every, the everyday stuff, but the emergency stuff too. So like what was plan B when our baby's caregiver was sick? We made decisions about what we could do, what we felt comfortable hiring other people to do, and what we just decided had to be cut out. Kevin was, at the, was with the Wall Street Journal at the time, covering the first Bush administration. His days were packed and a daily deadline loomed every day. So while our kids were small, we agreed that Kevin would do everything in his power to avoid travel. I did everything I could to avoid a social life outside of work hours, so no girls weekends, no book clubs, no volunteering, so that when I was home, which wasn't always, I could be completely and totally home. Did we drop some balls? (laughs) Sure, plenty of them. I once forgot to send Valentine's to preschool with Hannah. She was the only kid in the entire preschool who did not have cards to share. I hid in my bedroom and I cried that night. Hannah didn't. She had a whole bag of Valentine hearts and candy. (laughs) She was fine. It was a crazy, crazy life. As I mentioned, the evaporation of top-level talent inspired me to invest time in encouraging talent to grow. So to nourish connections between individuals and my firm, I invited aspiring consultants into our beautiful landmark home next door to the Kibblers for dinner and conversation. While managing important client relationships, even facilitating a nearly $800 million transaction for Bank of America, I created programs to encourage career growth and the retention of top talent, including a global mentoring program for female executives. All right, let's shift just a little bit. Meanwhile, in the year 2000, a group of three visionary women founded Atlanta Girls' School to help girls aim for highly productive careers in STEM and other fields. Many professional women in town took notice of this new school and provided support. I was immediately captivated by the promise of Atlanta Girls' School. I wrote an annual fund check that very first year and every year after. But more intimately, I became a mentor of an eighth grade student, Jacqueline, cheering her on at soccer games and eating with her in the cafeteria and observing the kind of education she was getting. One day while I was meeting with a group of networking uh, talented Accenture women an epiphany arose. I had helped numerous professional women network, take risks and reach, but at times I knew that I was too late. Somewhere along the line, maybe in middle school, many of these talented women had turned off their appetite for risk and for self-advocacy. Atlanta Girls' School was custom built to equip girls at a really early age to gain self awareness and practice resiliency. AGS just felt right to me, and I wanted to make a more enduring impact on women than I had at Accenture. So, while I loved my work and the income, I resolved to position myself closer to the source, to go closer. I wanted to become that teacher, you know, the one who challenges girls to question, speak up, and welcome the lessons that come from failure. I was lucky to have succeeded in earning and saving so that I could return to graduate school. I was hired by AGS and became a 42-year-old rookie teacher. I had moved nearer to the source. While at AGS for 12 years, I taught English and entrepreneurship. I was inspired daily by the student's willingness to lean into their discomfort and to own their own learning, as I knew it would form early habits that would change the trajectories of their careers and lives. When the head of school resigned unexpectedly in May 2012, the Board of Trustees asked me to stop teaching and to become the interim head. I hired new leaders of finance and development and I designed new processes in admissions. During my two-year tenure, AGS grew to 240 students and was successful, yay, in hiring a world-class head of school. So at this point, please indulge me a digression. The piece I'm going to say has very little to do with my business and professional life, but it is a continuation of the work that I started when I saw the evaporation of vibrant talent in 1993 and the rise and empowerment of future business and technology leaders at Atlanta Girls' School. While riding home after a sleepover, our then 14-year-old daughter, Hannah, became outraged about the inequities in our society when she saw a homeless man and a gleaming new Mercedes juxtaposed at a corner near our home. Her questions, her insistent questions about poverty and why, triggered a bold family decision to sell our historic 6,000-square-foot home, my dream house, move into one half the size, and use the proceeds to try to make the world better. We set up a donor-advised fund at the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta, and we deepened our relationship with our community. I turned on my inner consulting nerd and facilitated our family. Using worksheets and whiteboards on Saturday mornings, we discovered our values and our purpose. I deepened my resolve to help working people increase their own capacity to be fulfilled and achieving at work. We chose to step up our giving locally, and we made a large commitment internationally. Our family then took what had been a very private act, a ritual of meeting with my worksheets around the breakfast table, over bagels, and we made it public. Our young son, Joe, was first. He made a video of the experience, which is really hilarious. And then, Kevin and Hannah wrote our family memoir. I was really reticent about the public part because, as we all know, people who put themselves into the public eye open themselves up for attack. You know, I had had a 20-year career in business, and I, I could handle a little criticism, but I had two children to think about. And we did get some stern criticism, some of it very nasty and some of it personal, especially about our commitments in Africa. Posted on the Today Show site and on Amazon.com and elsewhere. At the same time, though, some kindred spirits, such as my friend Ed Morris here, felt inspired to take their own actions as they learned our story. It is widely reported, though I have no way of knowing whether it's true, that our family's experience inspired Melinda Gates to gather her husband and Warren Buffett to launch the Giving Pledge. On The Charlie Rose Show, She referred to our family as her heroes in philanthropy. Melinda and Bill Gates invited our family to their home, their office, uh, in a room that they referred to as their living room. Well, a living room sounds like a really intimate space to me, so I decided to bring a gift. I brought her a jar of my homemade pepper jelly. (laughs) My friend Della Wells and I grow the peppers on my roof and in her garden, and it's not for sissies. It's hot. <laughs> anyway, based on Melinda's really warm reaction to it, I would venture to guess that few of her neighbors just pop over with warm banana bread or other homemade gifts for her. It seemed to me that the gift of friendship and neighborliness that I extended that day had an impact. Melinda's warm receipt of my gift does remind, us, remind me of our first trip to Ghana. Where the proceeds of the sale of our house had been invested with the Hunger Project to help 20,000 villagers move from poverty to self reliance. Everything I knew about charity was turned on its head during that trip. As we prepared for it, our family was naturally very eager to gather up things books, soccer balls, shoes, medicines, you know, whatever we, we could to help. The Hunger Project specifically instructed us not to bring anything, no gifts. Further, they told us that if, while we were there, if our chair were to break during some kind of village gathering, that we were to allow a villager to help us fix it or to bring us another chair. That's because the people in these villages were working to identify and develop their own assets and to partner effectively with their local governments to obtain the resources they really needed, education, healthcare, electricity, et cetera. Our doing things for them, however insignificant, were an insult to their battle for self-reliance. It is no wonder that we want to be givers. Giving feels good, and it's a virtuous act. I can tell you that it was only after I was able to see myself as a receiver that I was able to give differently. Our daughter Hannah became inspired to make a difference when she saw a man begging for food near our home. But really, in the words of a believe it or not Mormon prophet, are we not all beggars? Do we not all depend on the one, our God, for all of our substance, for our food and our clothing, and for gold and for silver and for all the riches of every kind that we have? Because everything comes from God, whatever we give really isn't giving. It's re-gifting. You know, taking a gift that was given to us uh, from one person and giving it as a gift to someone else. Lots of people do this. Probably no one in the room, but lots of people do this. (laughs) There's actually now even a national holiday. Can you believe this? It's the third Thursday in December. It's called National Regifting Day. Most of the time, people re-gift something they don't want. Well, let's reframe that. What I'd like to suggest here is that re-gifting is an expression of gratitude from a cheerful receiver. This was given to me, and I fully appreciate it, so much so that I do not feel that I should need all of it. Enough is as good as a feast. All sorts of riches were given to me by my father, and everyone is a child of my father, which makes re-gifting very practical. (laughs) My own sense of importance about volunteering, serving, and giving is always kept in check by thinking of myself as needy and receiving. The needy men and women that we met in Ghana completely upended the, if you teach a man to fish, he will fish for a lifetime hoo-ha. I learned that in many cases, no one needs to teach that man to fish. He already knows how. In fact, he could teach all of us a thing or two about sustainable fishing in the waters that he navigates every day. It could be that he is not fishing because the river is polluted, or that he is not of the right tribe to gain access to the pond. Importantly, he might even be a she. As a girls' school educator, I was sure, when we went to Africa, that building schools, or at least paying the school fees for girls, was a way that I was called to help. Rather, I learned that a primary reason that a girl in Ghana or neighboring nations do not go to school is because the person who controls her time doesn't value it for her. Fees and proximity to schools are not often the issue. So we can teach Amanda fish or we can pay school fees, but unless we move right back down to the source, we may not be doing the good we need to do. Communities who confront their own barriers at the source and resolve as a unit to overcome them are very likely to bring about the change that will endure. The community that our family funded, where we funded trainers and facilitators who helped lift them and find their own best selves has nearly ended its own poverty and hunger. It will soon be self-reliant. So, to wrap up. My cheerful receipt of three gifts defines my professional life. Irrigation nurtured my skill sets, providing for steady growth. Evaporation challenged me to explore the causes of energy escape and the characteristics of environments that keep energy moving. Repositioning nearer to the source enabled me to be part of solutions. I am eternally grateful for these and all gifts and for the one from whom all blessings flow. In this season of giving, I urge you, too, to look at ways that you could re-gift the riches that you have of every kind. Thank you.
0: You hear that applause is our gratitude for the gift you've just given to all of us. Okay. We are going to honor everyone's time today and try to stay within a one-hour period, but we have time for just a few questions, and Joan will answer them if anyone has them. Okay, run the microphone to you. Here's one. Oh, Brad. has a question. Who's in charge, Melinda or Bill Gates?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> Okay, great. Uh, I'm so excited to get started in January. Um, Kevin and I are both going to Stanford, as is our dog Charlie, where we'll be part of a program with 25 other adults um, who are leaders of various kinds from a lot of different walks of life. And together we're going to explore a number of social problems and, and expand into ways that those problems could be solved. So part of the, the program is working as a cohort, but we also get to audit any class at the university that we want to. And it's kind of like TED or Evening at Emory or something. There are no, no grades, so we can just go <laughs> and, and learn. So I'm pretty excited about that. Great, great. Um, everyone that the Hunger Project hires is a local, uh, native-speaking person. There are no Westerners who come on in with any kind of skill set or, uh, you know, technologies to help. It's all very indigenous and slow. So our dollars actually go to pay salaries for um, facilitators, trainers who train others, uh, you know, people who are skilled in c- conducting early workshops that can allow. Uh, villagers to form committees and to begin the work of prioritizing the needs they have in the community. Um, there are some things that, that we also uh, provide, like matching gifts or challenge grants so that the, um, the village can go to a local government and say, you know, we have a sponsor who will pay 3000 of this if you pay the other 3000 so some things like that.
0: Up front. So um, tell us, fast forward to today, how has the experience impacted or continues to impact your children?
1: Mm. It's a great question. You know, the, uh, the, our family unity that, uh, that came out of my facilitation <laughs> is, <laughs> is pretty remarkable. Yeah, no, um, okay. You know, the fact that, you know, there are just so many things. The fact that Hannah, who was a, you know, kind of prickly teenager, wrote a book with her dad you know, had, you know, enormous impact on their ability to hear each other and respect each other and, you know, this whole process, Mark, allowed us to be seriously dumb, you know, like we would be, we would explore some issue together and Joe would say, well, why does that happen? And we could honestly say, I don't know, let's find out together, you know, what do you think? And Anyway, so that experience continues to, um, I think, play out just in our regular family um, interactions. You know, we kind of leveled the playing field. We, we became kind of a family democracy, which is really strange, you know, in our, in our nation. But, you know, we still, we've traveled to Ghana several times more as a family, and uh, every year we go to New York and meet with other donors and investors, and, be, and we're updated on the progress of, of the work. So, it's something we continue to share.
0: Make sure that it's not you putting yourself on that community. So, how do you do that? For instance, in your situation in God, how do you, how do you, how do you know that when you're giving, you're truly giving to the community as, it is, as best mm-hmm. versus
1: what you think as an American? It's to be? I really appreciate your question about how do we know that we're not messing things up when we are trying to do good? And I think the answer is, we we don't totally always know uh, at the time or later because unintended consequences can pop up at any time in a community's evolution, right? So uh, one of the things that we like about the organization we're working with is their, their commitment to monitoring and evaluation. And just like everything else it does, it's not you know, people from Yale coming and measuring and whatever, it's from the community itself. And so they set their own goals. And they, you know, interview and survey and monitor uh, really in their own way. And um, that may not be best, but it feels kind of authentic and in alignment with the way the whole organization works. I really wanted to cede a lot of that responsibility to the kids, to be honest. Uh, they were giving up their house just like I was. They were giving up bedrooms with chandeliers and um, uh, an elevator and all sorts of things. So they had a big stake in it. So I decided I wasn't going to um, stake out my own personal preference. But I will say when we met with, uh, it was fun. We had a day where we met with several of these organizations. and. Many of them kind of seemed this similar. You know, we have good seeds, we have good technology, you know, we have figured out how to, you know, nurture and nourish this nitrogen poor soil and soil and all this kind of stuff. Um, it, it all felt the same. Again, with this same organization, with, uh, with The Hunger Project, Joan Holmes said, when we first went into the villages in Africa, what we found was, and in that tiny little second, I already knew what she was going to say. She was going to say, we found people who were good-hearted, but who needed some seeds and some whatever. And she didn't say that. She said, we found people who were resourceful and resilient and who were ready to be mobilized. And you know, just that different um, take on the human spirit definitely won me over. And fortunately, the other three voted for it, too. <laughs>
0: which to end. The tradition at this event, Business and Professional Luncheon, is for the speaker to elect to donate the honorarium for this to another organization. And Joan has elected for this honorarium provided generously by Carter
1: to go to the Hunger Project. So I'm giving you this check, but she's not keeping this check. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you all.